Mark 10, verses 35 through 45. Then, then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, there is something we want you to do for us. What is it? Jesus asked them. They answered, when you sit on your throne in a glorious kingdom, we want you to let us sit, sit with you. One at your right and one at your left. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup of suffering that I, mu- that I must drink? Can you be baptized in the way that I must be baptized? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you, need, you will indeed drink the cup I must drink and be baptized in the way that I must be baptized. But I do not have the right to choose who will sit at my right and who will sit on my left. It is God who will give these places to, to those for whom he has prepared them. When the other ten disciples heard about it, they became angry with James and John. So Jesus called them all together and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the heathen have power over them, and the leaders have complete authority. This, however, is not the way it is among you. If one of you wants to be great, you must be a servant of the rest. And if one of you wants to be first, you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and give us his life to redeem many people. The word of the Lord. Thank you to the children for uh, reading the word so effectively and and showing us the word so effectively this morning. Um, I think most of us, when we hear that second story about two disciples wanting to get the best seats next to Jesus, uh, we think that it must be a story about selfishness or greed. And we kind of chafe at the gall of people who had cut the line maybe try to take a little bit more than their fair share. And there's no doubt that that's going on in the story. That's a big part of what's going on here. In fact, the evangelist Matthew, when he tells the story in his gospel, he seems to be so embarrassed that two disciples would ask a question like this that he suggests that this outrageous request didn't come from James and John. It actually came from their mother, right? Uh, and it kind of makes James and John look even more ridiculous as we imagine them you know, running up to mommy and saying, hey, mommy, will you ask Jesus if we could be in charge of the disciples? You know? But there's another way, I think, to look at this uh, story, look at this question that James and John ask of Jesus. What if this thing that these two disciples ask is not motivated as much by selfishness as it is by something else, and that is namely fear. We have to remember that right before the sons of Zebedee ask this favor of Jesus, right before they're walking on the the road and Jesus has just told them for the third time how hard things are about to get for him. 
We're going up to Jerusalem, he told them, and when we get there, I will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn me to death, and then they will hand me over to the Gentiles, and they will mock me, and they'll spit on me, and they'll flog me, and they'll kill me. And after three days, I will rise again. So the disciples had to be thinking about what might happen to them as the friends of this criminal marked for execution, if Jesus was about to go into a perilous spiritual battle, they would almost certainly find themselves in the thick of the fight as well. And given that reality, perhaps the disciples just wanted to be close to Jesus because they thought it might be safer there. It's the same instinct that might bring a frightened little child into her parents' bedroom when a storm hits late at night, you know, when the lightning flashes and the thunder rolls and the branches are booming and battering the sides of the house and the child jumps into bed with mom and dad because it seems to be the most secure and protected place that she can imagine. When I was a pastor in Rocky Mount, one of the most faithful members of the choir was a man named Bob Malden. Bob loved to sing on Sundays, but he never really considered himself to be the strongest singer. He knew that there were times when he might read those notes and something completely different would come out of his mouth. But like here, the church in Rocky Mount, that choir, uh, was blessed to have in its ranks a number of scholarship singers who would come from neighboring university, a, a, neighboring, a neighboring university, to lend their gifts to the choir. And like here, those were very, very talented young singers. So Bob's strategy was whenever there was kind of a hard piece of music or whenever he wasn't feeling particularly confident, he would situate himself either to the right or the left of that young scholarship tenor. And he knew with that strong, trained voice singing on key right beside him that he would be safer. In the same way, if I had been a soldier in the Philistine army, I'm pretty sure I would have tried to be to the right or the left of Goliath whenever I could. Am I wrong to think that that would have been a pretty good place to be? In height, he was at least 6'9". Truly a giant in his day. For armor, he wore a bronze helmet and an intricate tunic with hundreds of overlapping metal scales. It was big enough to cover his arms and his upper legs, his thighs. He had bronze shin guards to protect his lower legs. He had bronze plates on the top of his feet. He carried an armor-piercing javelin in one hand and a short-range spear in the other. A third weapon, a sword, was always on his hip, just in case. And his servant, who never left his side, was with him there with his massive shield. So Goliath may not have been very mobile or nimble, but at close range, he was virtually unbeatable. And I would think that standing next to Goliath was the best, the safest, the most preferred spot on that battlefield. So it may be that these two disciples, as they came to grips with the dangerous net that was beginning to close around them, that they wanted to stand as close as they could to this man who had performed so many miracles and deeds of power before their eyes, the one who had calmed the storm and 
tamed the winds, the one who had healed so many diseases and confounded so many pharisaical lawyers. Perhaps they were just looking for the safest spot on the spiritual battlefield, which would have been to the right or to the left of the most powerful spiritual warrior they had ever known. And even if their request may have been a little about selfishness and greed, I think you'll probably agree with me that fear tends to make us selfish and greedy. One of our church staff members recently shared a story with us about a close family friend who works at a retirement home up in Wilmington, North Carolina. And during Hurricane Florence, a very well-meaning corporate executive of the umbrella organization of that retirement home, emailed from Connecticut uh, that the families of all the residents in that Wilmington facility should be able to come and take shelter with their loved ones. It was a very thoughtful and generous gesture, one that was completely well-meaning, but I just don't think he realized how many people were going to take them up on that invitation. Second cousins, third cousins began to show up, and they brought their pets with them, right? And so no one was turned away, but the place was kind of bursting at the seams with people. When the storm hit and the power went out, they quickly discovered that the generators on site did not have the capacity to keep the air conditioning system running. So with the windows all boarded up to protect from the storm, the air in that facility began to get very hot and very stale. People began to pass out from the heat. Pets became sick from the heat. The floors got very slippery with condensation. An older gentleman slipped on those floors and broke his hip. Ambulance was not able to come because of the storm. So they did their best to keep him comfortable in that terrible environment. But suffice to say, it was a very frightening time. It was a very uncomfortable, anxious, stressful time. And that first night of the storm, someone decided, okay, we've got food here. Why don't we cook hamburgers for everyone? Which was lovely. But as soon as that food line opened, they watched as people kind of rushed in to grab two, maybe three plates just for themselves. People began to run back to get seconds and thirds before everyone had even come through the line once. Fear has a way of overwhelming our moral compasses, our moral conscience, pushing us to do self-interested things that in normal circumstances we would know we probably should not, probably should not. So regardless of what it was that prompted James and John to ask this question of Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? We have to note that Jesus does not respond in any way with anger or frustration. He responds instead with righteousness and patience and grace. He does not chastise them. He simply says to them, You really have no idea what you're asking me. It's as if he's saying, you are seeking glory, but you have no real idea what glory is. Because yes, Jesus would soon be raised in glory, but they didn't know that that would mean he would be raised up on a cross. And yes, there would be 
a man to his right and to his left, but in that glorification, those people would be criminals. Those people would be men who were condemned to die with Jesus on that small hill. In the kingdom of heaven, glory tends to be found in suffering. You're seeking power, Jesus says, but you have no idea what true power is. When you and I are afraid, we tend to look around for the first Goliath we can find in the hopes that we might just stand next to him and perhaps take shelter in his power. And when we do this, one of the things that I think we do is that we forget that Jesus comes not from Goliath's line, but from David's. Jesus is a descendant of the one who defeated the giant warrior, not with superior strength or muscle or status, but in humility and honesty and selfless courage. You saw in the little reenactment, David refused to wear armor in the fight. He said, it's just going to hold me back. It's just going to weigh me down. It's just going to get in my way. And that is the model of power that Scripture gives us again and again. In the kingdom of heaven, power is revealed and often expressed in weakness. You're seeking safety, Jesus says, but you have no idea what safety is. On the spiritual battlefield, there's really no sheltered place. For the first will be last, and the last will be first. Everything is kind of turned upside down. Yes, the chosen one stands beside us, but his weapons are not made of steel or iron. Scripture tells us he is armed only with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and he carries no sword. The word of God is his only offensive weapon. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, Scripture says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In the kingdom of heaven, safety is found in vulnerability. And these days I'm worried that the church is turning its back on this inherent gospel truth. Prominent faith leaders are now openly preaching power politics. It's like they're trying to weaponize faith, weaponize the church to be some kind of pawn in winner-take-all politics in which the ends can be justified by almost any means. And believe me when I tell you, we in the church cannot listen to those voices. We cannot support or condone those voices or presume they really do talk for us because those voices really are not promoting the gospel. They're not building up the church, and they're not really speaking for Jesus. It seems like what they're really doing is just trying to stand next to Goliath. And maybe that's about greed. Maybe it's about selfishness. Maybe it's about fear. But whatever it is in the story of the Christian faith, Strategies that depend upon standing next to Goliath do not end well. And Jesus knew that his disciples were about to walk right into Jerusalem. And he knew that they needed to learn this lesson, learn it quickly, and remember it. 
So he gathered those disciples together and he told them these words, you know that those who are considered rulers of the heathen have power over them and the leaders have complete authority. This, however, is not the way it is among you. If one of you wants to be great, they must be the servant of the rest. If one of you must be, wants to be first, you must be the slave of all. And if we have any question about power that can be seen in weakness or the strength that can be found in vulnerability, we need look only around us on this children's Sabbath morning and recognize the powerful witness that these children are offering to us today. It's no wonder that Jesus continually uses them to teach us about faith. So in that spirit, I'll close with a final story. Wally was in the second grade. Wally should have been in the fourth grade, but he'd already been held back twice. He had a significant learning disability. His IQ was not very high. But Wally was also helpful and gentle and kind, and he had a big wonderful, genuine smile. It made him a favorite of adults and the younger kids at church. When the time came for the annual Christmas pageant, Wally really wanted to be a shepherd. The director knew Wally wanted to be a shepherd. But shepherds had lines. Shepherds had a lot of lines. And shepherds were in most of the scenes. So the director thought it would be safer to make him the innkeeper. The innkeeper was in only one scene. The innkeeper had only a few words to remember. So Wally was cast not as a shepherd, but as the owner of the inn in Bethlehem. On the night of the pageant, as the curtain went up, Wally watched intently from the wings. He was entranced by everything that was happening on the stage, loved watching the the characters walk all over the stage in the bright lights, but When the time came for Joseph to knock on the door of his inn, Wally the innkeeper was in position and he was ready. But he was kind of torqued up and excited about his role in the play. So when the knock came, he kind of threw the door open a little bit too too, uh, fast. And the words that he blurted out came a little bit abruptly, but they were right. What do you want? He said, we need a room, Joseph replied. Now, in order to keep this scene moving, the director had revised the dialogue for the innkeeper down to its most rudimentary form. All Wally was supposed to say was two words, no room. And there was a pause, and Wally seemed to be getting uncomfortable, and finally he said it. He said it grudgingly. He didn't look Joseph in the eye when he said it, but the words were right, no room. Following the script, Joseph pleaded, Please, good innkeeper, this is my betrothed. She is great with child. She needs a place to rest. Please, please can't you find us some room in your inn? Again, the response was supposed to be the same. No room. And then close the door. While his eyes turned to Mary, and then he kind of looked down at the floor, Finally, he gave in to duty. He delivered the final blow. No room, he said. But he didn't close the door. And then a single tear began 
began to flow down Wally's cheek, and he just stood there watching as Mary and Joseph sadly walked away. And suddenly he couldn't take it anymore. He cried out. He said, Joseph, don't go. You can have my room. Just ask that director if there are any safe places in the kingdom of heaven. In a world where most seem to believe that might makes right and winner takes all and that grabbing the best seats for ourselves is not only permissible but virtuous, children have a way of reminding us what true strength looks like, what winning really looks like, in the kingdom of heaven. And we may think that safety and strength can be found by standing next to Goliath. But again, the words of Jesus are very clear on this point. This is not the way it is among you. For if one of you wants to be great, you must be the servant of all. And if one of you wants to be first, you must first be the slave of all. Thanks be to God.